Our scripture lesson today comes from Romans chapter 8, and I will be reading verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. If we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and is suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation, we ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that is not hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, after a brief hiatus, we are back in Romans. So welcome back to Romans. Um, Just a little recap, hopefully, of where we are. Um, So basic, basic recap. This is Paul. He's writing um, a letter to the church that meets in Rome. Okay, so he's writing to the Romans. And and he has been talking um, for for the first half of this book about how we are set free from sin. By in Christ, we are set free from the power of sin. Uh, Before Christ, we had no choice, right? Sin reigned in the world, sin reigned in our bodies. But Christ comes and sets us free so that perhaps for the first time in Christ, we are able to choose between what is good and what is righteous and what is sin. Before that, no choice. We were bound to sin, bound to death, and the wages of sin is death. But in Christ, we are set free. We are set free to choose. And, and, and Paul sets about saying to the, to the church at Rome, don't choose again to go back into the slavery to sin and to death, right? But rather to choose righteousness, to choose what is good, to choose what is the pathway of God. Then Paul goes on to say that, but even in the midst of that, we sometimes struggle. We have this struggle where, where we want to choose what is good, but we get dragged back in because on our own strength and our own power, we have no capability of choosing what is right and good. We may be free, but we, we lack the ability to consistently choose what is right, what is good, and what is holy. And so as we talked about two weeks ago, Paul basically says, it is by the Spirit 
that is in us, that God gives, that we are enabled to choose what is right and to choose what is good. We do not do it on our own power, in our own strength, but rather it is the spirit that gives us strength to choose righteously. And more than that, there is hope, right? We are not doomed to choose sin and just repeat the cycle until we die, but rather we are live, given this power by the spirit to choose what is good, to live free, to live lives of righteousness. So, so here we are, we're, we're talking about, about this idea that the spirit gives us power to choose what is right, to choose what is good, to live righteously, perhaps for the first time. And so Paul comes back and, and he comes back to remind us of this sort of this duality of, 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 of who we serve and, and how we serve either what is right and what is good or what is sinful and ultimately leads to death. He says that by the spirit and since we are set free, we are no longer obligated to serve death. Right? We are no longer chained to sort of this body of death to drag it around. We are no longer obligated to that. Because why? Sin and death brought us nothing good. Right? We go back to what he has written already before. Right? What, what did a life indebted to the flesh give us? Well, nothing good. It gave us regret. It gave us shame. And it gave us death. Right? And so he says, why would we think that we are obligated to that? We aren't. We're set free from that. And we're set free, what? To choose what is right and good. The chains are broken and we are set free to serve God by the power of the spirit at work in us. We are no longer slaves to the flesh or selfishness as, as the translation I read terms it, but rather we are set free to live by the spirit and to live under the power of the spirit. I want to make sure again that I note when Paul talks about the flesh, he is not talking about material things. He is not talking about the body as the body. When Paul talks about and makes this differentiation between the flesh and the spirit, it's basically unto who we owe our allegiance to and what we follow. The flesh is what has been corrupted by sin in the world. The wages of sin is death, right? And so to sow to the flesh, to be obligated to the flesh is to be obligated to that which is sinful, right? To that which causes only death. It's not talking about material things. It's not a saying, you know, if we can just get rid of all this mortal material stuff, then we'll be good and we'll just be pure spirit. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is we are not obligated to the, to the flesh that is tied to sin, to that's been corrupted, but rather in Christ, we are made new. This is getting on a little bit later, but we're made new in Christ and now we serve the spirit or what is good. We are obligated or we, we look to God as our orienting concern. Right? So, so, so what, what, what the life in Christ looks like is saying no to the things of the flesh and saying yes to the things of God. We no longer serve the, the sort of the needs and the selfishness that, that sin and death brought, but rather we serve the things of God. We seek after the things of God rather than our own sort of selfish enjoyment being the thing that dominates and orients our lives. It is Christ and the kingdom of God that orients our lives. This is the distinction that Paul is making. Again, it's not between what is material and what is spiritual or what is spirit. It is between what is serves the flesh and sin and death and what serves the righteousness of God in God's own kingdom. Okay. I think I'm done with that one. But it's an important distinction to make, right? Because the material is not bad. And so Paul goes basically on to say, he says, we are free. We are free now to, to serve and, and the spirit brings life to us. 
But, but Paul goes on, goes on to say more that he says, if, if we live by the Spirit, then we are children of God. And this is, a, this is a big thing here, right? Because Paul has talked about before, he's talked about sort of these distinction of, of who we serve and, and who we are slaves to, right? We're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. But the difference between slave and son or daughter is a very, very big qualitative difference. So, so Paul wants to make sure that we know that, that if, we, if we live by the Spirit, then we aren't just slaves to God as as, as, as as all the negative ways we think about slavery. Yes, we, we do that and we follow that, but, but if we follow the Spirit, then we become children of God. We are adopted into God's family. Now, this is a pretty cool thing when you think about it just sort of relationally, that, that, that a people who, who were no people have now become children of God. Right? Paul will write elsewhere, you know, once you were no people, but because God has called you and gathered you together, now you are a people, you are a family, part of God's household. And that is wonderful and beautiful language to think about, about being orphaned, about being cut off from your family, and about God saying, you know what, I want you to be a part of mine. Right? That's wonderful relational talk, and that's good stuff. But, but there's more than that going on in this particular text. Because the idea of adoption in Roman first century is not simply just becoming part of a family, but adoption implied inheritance as well. Right? So, so think of it this way. Perhaps this would help. Um, in the ancient Roman world, if a, if a ruler, a Caesar perhaps, wanted to make sure a certain person came after them, right, to ensure succession for the next Caesar, they would adopt them. Right? And this happened not just for children, but for adults too. Caesar Augustus was actually adopted, and that's how he became Caesar. He inherited his adopted father's title and ultimately ascended to be the first true emperor of Rome. So we think about, about this relationally, but there's also something else going on here that it's not just simply adoption into a family, but it's a reception of the inheritance. Of all that is God's. Think about that for a moment. The inheritance of all that is God's. Paul is saying we are invited into that. And by the spirit, if we follow the spirit, we are adopted into that family. It means we are sons and daughters of the most high God and co-heirs, Paul says, with Christ. Now he's our elder brother, but we are co-heirs with Christ. We receive the inheritance of all that is God's, of the kingdom of God. And if you ask me, that's pretty big stuff. I I don't know if that wows you or not, but I think it should. I I think that's Paul's intent. I think Paul is intending for us to be wowed by this fact. You are sons and daughters of the most high high God, which means relationally you're part of the family of God, but you are also sons and daughters of the most high God, which means that practically speaking, you are inheritors of all that is good and all that is God's. And the even better news, Paul doesn't write this here, but is that everyone is available. Like that's available to anyone who would follow and live by the spirit. That, That God's sort of net is so wide that he just desires to gather anyone and everyone who would to be a part of his family. One of the most beautiful things in Revelation that I read is the fact that there is a kingdom of God when it talks about the new Jerusalem, it talks about the gates never being shut. 
that anyone who chooses to follow in the ways of the kingdom of God will be welcome to do so. And essentially, what John writes in the book of Revelation is that the people who choose not to be there are the ones who don't want to live under the rule and reign of God. Who wouldn't be happy with it, who wouldn't like it. He opens it to everyone and he says, you can be my children, heirs to this kingdom. Think about it, the earth is his and all that is in it. Creator of the universe has invited you and me to be part of his family and to be inheritors of that kingdom. That's pretty amazing stuff, if you ask me. Part of what that means is, yes, we are heirs. We have inheritance. And we can talk about that. We won't go in too much to what that is today, but God's kingdom, God's reign and rule, there's stuff about that all throughout scripture about what it means to be an inheritor, God's goodness, God's love. It also means that we're invited into the family business, not that family business. We're invited into the family business. So part of what it means to be an inheritor of God's kingdom, to be a co-heir with Christ, is that we are now given a job. We are given a trade. We're all farmers. We are invited into not only the inheritance in the kingdom of God, we don't just sit on our hands. God says, hey, I'm going to teach you the family business. Which, in part, we talked about last week, right? The farmer goes out to sow the seeds of the kingdom. And part of the job of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, was to sow the seeds of the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom of God was near, and to do things that showed that was the case. In his words, in his actions, in his deeds, he showed that the kingdom of God was indeed breaking into the world. The rule and reign of God was breaking into the world. And when God reigns, the deaf hear and the blind see. The poor are taken care of. The captives are released. And the the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed in the nations, right? That's the job of our family. And we are invited into that. To be those who sow seeds of the kingdom. In word, proclamation. We proclaim that the kingdom of God is near but also in action as we go and we work in tangible acts of love and care and kingdom in our world. That's what we're trying to develop on Tuesday nights. Just going to put a plug in for that. Tangible ways of, of sowing the kingdom in our world through words and through deeds, both and. But th- there is sort of a downside to this. And the downside is this that if we look around us, we don't see this inbreaking kingdom all the time. When we look around us, sometimes we see that it doesn't look like the world much looks like the descriptions of the kingdom of God that either Jesus gives or that we see in Revelation that we see throughout the scriptures. We see a world that is broken. We see a world that seems to be at war with itself, people at war with others. Nation rising against nation, right? And we see this all around us. We see this in our lives. We see this in our world. 
We, we see this as, as, as we hear of those who are proclaimers of the gospel, this good kingdom of God being actively persecuted because of that proclamation of the kingdom. Now, we in this nation don't experience that very much, but in the world around us, it happens far more often. Actively opposed for their proclamation. You see, as, as inheritors of, of the kingdom of God and, and inheritors of, of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and as those who are at work about our Father's business, we know that sometimes that doesn't go well, that we are opposed as we do that. Particularly when Paul is addressing it, he is addressing it to a people who are likely very actively and sometimes violently persecuted for the faith that they have. He is talking as one who, if not currently in prison, will be shortly or has just been released from prison. We're not entirely sure from where Romans was written, but we know that Paul spent a lot of time in prison, primarily because he proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he said, there is a king and Caesar ain't it. He was opposed. He was thrown into prison. Because of this very real reality that though the kingdom of God is in the midst, Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. It had not arrived in its fullness. Not everyone saw it and not everyone recognized it. And some very, very actively opposed the kingdom of God. Paul knew. Paul lived through it. And so we have in the scriptures here and elsewhere this idea of, of an already not yet, of a, of a reality that has been presented and that we have seen in ways, and yet this idea that it has not come in its fullness. The visual I have is we're sitting in a waiting room sometimes. We know something's coming. We know something better is coming, and yet we wait. God, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do this in your fullness? When are we going to see this final and full consummation of the kingdom of God? When are we going to see the world made right and made new? When are we going to see reconciliation on a grand scale? Jesus, when? We believe you promised that, and we believe you said it was on its way, but where is it? In fact, Paul gives voice to this, right? We recognize, he says... And he talks about the trials. He says, there's something coming that's far greater than we have ever think or imagined or experienced. There's something on the horizon that we are waiting for, and yet we wait. We wait. And the, and the, and that, and the future goal and that future hope is so good that it, it just doesn't even compare in its greatness to, to the things, the way things are now, Right? It's so far beyond what we're experiencing now, and yet we do not see it in its fullness. We still yet wait for it to happen. In fact, what Paul says is that creation itself is waiting for this to happen. Did you catch that? Creation itself is waiting for this to happen. The redemption of the world is not solely a human activity. Creation itself groans, it says. Groans for the final and full revelation of the people of God as one. In the waiting room, creation sits with us because creation itself is broken, is scarred because of human sinfulness. 
Our sinfulness is not limited to personal. It's not limited to small communities. It's not limited to human endeavor. Creation itself feels the effects of the sin of the world of selling ourselves to sin and death and decay. But Paul wants to give this cosmic scope to the church at Rome. They can see the cosmic scope of what is going on. This isn't just about this small community. It's not just about you. It's about a far greater reality of God making all things new, of God restoring all of creation back to God's self. I'm not entirely sure what renewed creation looks like, but I believe it's going to be good. We get glimpses of it in Scripture. I know I keep saying this, but ask Harold about some of the descriptions he sees in Revelation about the world made right and made new. I mention that because his excitement about Revelation has made me more excited about Revelation. I was always pretty excited about it. About things made new, about God redeeming all things and bringing all things back to God's own self. It's an exciting vision. If Revelation scares you, it shouldn't. But if it does, Isaiah talks about this too. Right? There's a day coming when the mountain of the Lord's house will be raised above every other nation. The nations will stream to it. They will stream to it and they will learn from the Lord. They won't say, well, we should settle this with fisticuffs or we shall settle this by fisticuffs. I just used that word. Uh, We will settle this by war. It says we're going to go settle this at the feet of almighty God and let him decide. It's about that description where the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Those two are mortal enemies, by the way, right? Ask a Montana farmer what they think about wolves and their sheep right? The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Or the child will play on the adder's den, right? This, this vision of creation that looks so dissimilar where these natural enemies are together and a child shall lead them. This is Paul's description of this world, not just humanity made better, not just humanity made new, but the world itself, creation itself, not rearranged per se, but turned right side up so that everything settles where it should be, where God intends it to be, where God desires it to be. Paul is probably not the best um, descriptor of what it means to be pregnant, but he uses the, the, uses the metaphor. He uses the metaphor of, of creation growing, groaning, being like a mother who is expecting a child, the labor pains. Again, I'm no expert. Just want to put that out there. But I've heard it's pretty painful. Probably more painful than anything I will experience. Paul describes it that way, but saying that it's kind of like that because there is something on the other side. There is joy on the other side. The, 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 the pain of labor is bad. Just make sure I'm right. Am I right, Chris? It's bad. Okay. But that something on the other side brings innumerable and immeasurable joy. Not to say the bad is good, but to say there is something on the other side to be expected that brings joy, that brings life, that brings wonder. And that's the metaphor Paul uses, this this idea of of the the suffering now being something that, that... 
that happens, that we endure, and that, and that we know, however, has an end and will lead to something great and wonderful and good. It's that in-between time. The time in between the promise and the reality. That in-between time of the, the promise of what is good, but the pain to get there. And yet joy and wonder on the other side. Paul says that we wait with creation for this. Paul says that, that we wait in, in anticipation for this. He even says we don't see it. We, it's not, a, it's not a, a tangible reality that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can feel. Not all the time anyway. We get glimpses of God's kingdom. Right? We, we see people reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. We see glimpses of God's kingdom. We see, we see Christ and, and Christ made new. We, we, we see, and in, in, in sometimes in the people of God, we see healing and we see lives restored. All this stuff. We see glimpses of the kingdom, but we don't see it in its fullness. And so we wait, is what Paul says. But we wait with expectant hope. Believing that the trials of this time, the turmoil of this time, will lead ultimately and end in the redemption and reconciliation of all things. And so we wait. We're waiting for a world made new. But we do not wait passively. So unlike the waiting room picture, we don't just sit on our hands looking at our watch going, God, when are you coming? Now, there may be times where we say, God, I really wish you'd come. I really wish you'd just make this whole thing a reality because it's hard. It's difficult. I don't know if I have the strength to run the rest of the race. I just need a breather. But we don't wait doing nothing for what we are called to do the Father's business. We have been given a job to do. If we are heirs to the kingdom, if we are co-heirs with Christ, then we are about the same business, the sowing of the kingdom. We don't reconcile the world, but we are ministers. We are agents of reconciliation. Paul will talk about this elsewhere, that, that we are agents of reconciliation in our world. We are called to be, to be not only just the, the sons and daughters of God who wear that proudly, we should wear that proudly, but, but sons and daughters of God who are doing the, the work of God in, in, in helping God to redeem all things to God's self, pointing at reconciliation in Christ, seeking reconciliation with one another and, and among peoples being peacemakers rather than warmongers, right? This is what it means to be an agent of reconciliation as, as, we try, as, as we try to let the Spirit work in us to proclaim that God is bringing all things to God's himself. As we proclaim it in word, as we ought to do, we also enact in deed as we seek to do. As the Spirit calls, as the Spirit reminds We try to be tangible examples of the goodness of the kingdom of God in our world. This might come just as a kind word to another person. It might come as an act of forgiveness to someone who, quote-unquote, doesn't deserve it. It may come 
in the form of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, housing the homeless. It, it may come in the form of, of speaking words of truth to power, of saying, I will not go along with that. It takes all sorts of different forms. But ultimately what it is, is by our lives and our words, we say that we serve a king who is reconciling all things to God's own self. And that when push comes to shove, we are beholden to no other but God and his rule and reign in the world. And that's how we wait. We wait in the hope that God is working behind the scenes. Not to harp on this too much, but that's what Revelation's about. How's God working behind the scenes in ways we don't see? God's working behind the scenes and and God is using me and God is using you and each and every one of the people in this room to do the work, the kingdom of God. And so small mustard seeds are sown. A little bit of leaven is added to the bread and it permeates the whole loaf. And so the kingdom of God comes, maybe not with huge deeds of power, maybe not with, with armies and wars, but as the people of God and the spirit of God is at least in the world. And that's what we are called to be a part of as heirs of God's kingdom. So sometimes it's hard to look around us and see the kingdom and to believe that it's coming. Too few of us, too many of them, whatever it might be. But the words of Paul and and the words of scripture encourage us to have a longer view and to have a view of God who is always at work. And in so doing, to put our hand to the plow, pick up the seeds of the kingdom from our bag, and to sow them, not sparingly, but generously, anywhere and everywhere we go. To use another metaphor, Paul will encourage the Philippians to run the race that is set before you. There is a goal. We don't have it in hand yet. It says, not that I have already attained these things, but I press on towards the goal. So let us today press on towards the goal. Let us wait and run with hope that the kingdom of God is indeed in our midst and the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness. When I wrote this sermon, I didn't intend to bring up Revelation so much, so perhaps it's fitting that our last song is taken directly from the words of Revelation. For, for that's the end we, we shoot for. The words of this last song come from Revelation chapter 2. As, as the nations beyond count, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is gathered around the throne of the crucified and risen Messiah. And together as one, they sing, holy, 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 Lord God, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And so today, as an act of perhaps defiant hope, I'm going to ask us to sing this final song. A song that declares that God's kingdom is coming, that God is indeed drawing all things back to God's self. A song that declares his kingdom is near. 
and we will take up the song with one another, with the saints before and to come, and in fact, with all of creation to sing that our God reigns and that Christ is King. We'll stand together in our last song. I sing praise to the King of Kings. 
want to end today by reading some words from Revelation 5. It's not Revelation 2 that that's found, it's Revelation 4 and 5, just to make sure I'm above board here. Um, These are the words that John wrote. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed for God saints from every tribe, language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered in the myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, singing in full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It is in that heavenly song that we have joined today. And it is in that heavenly work that we go about each day sowing seeds of the here and yet coming kingdom of God. As you go, go in grace, go in peace, go and be about your father's business. You are dismissed.